0: Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 465 of the podcast and it is the 13th of December 2019 as I record this. So today I'm talking to Ken Acherty, who produced The Meg, amongst many other films. And even if you don't like action movies, I think you'll really find this interesting. So Ken talks about how long it takes to go from book to screen. Of course, it's very variable, but sometimes it can take quite a long time. And we get into why log lines are so important for pitching. Now, this isn't just for when you want to pitch something for a film. Uh, It can be super useful in other ways. And this is one of my stumbling blocks for sure. Um, The most successful authors are those who can hook a reader with a one-liner. And that one-liner can go all the way to the film. Uh, You can use it in advertising, other marketing, but it is a challenge. And I think it might even be more of a challenge if you're a discovery writer like me, because uh, you might not know that up front. (laughs) In fact you probably don't uh so we have a really interesting discussion and you know even in these big action movies character is still super key so that is coming up So we're into the holiday season, so not much going on in terms of news. Obviously, in Britain this morning, we did wake up to um, uh, a government and we are going forward with uh, Brexit. But it's unclear right now how that will impact publishing and authors and everything in general. So I'm not even going to comment on that, uh, except to acknowledge that it's happened. So uh, at some point, I will have some thoughts on how it might impact uh, publishers and uh, authors on, on this side of the pond. Um, But in terms of other personal things, Productivity for Authors launched this week. Thank you to everyone who bought it and reviewed it. I always appreciate sales and reviews, (laughs) just like any other author. It did hit a few bestseller lists on day one uh, on Amazon. So thank you for that. And I'm getting some great feedback. Kristin Glassbergen says, I'm finding the new book so helpful. I have the audiobook and it's like Joanna is giving me a personal pep talk. Uh, So glad that's useful, Kristin. And of course, uh, I did narrate the audiobook for productivity for authors. So uh, you can go and get that also in every other possible format. I'm also, this week I have been, I've been like, hard on writing the first draft of audio for authors, audiobooks, podcasting and voice technologies. It's on pre-order for uh, second week of February 2020. It is now over 50,000 words. It's so funny. I keep thinking I'm done. And then I'm like, oh, I must write about that. I must write about that. And it's very difficult. And I wrote a, a whole load, like a couple of thousand words and then deleted it all and didn't delete it, put it somewhere else. Because for the voice technology section. I don't want to go too detailed on the technological side because, of course, this stuff changes so fast. I mean, really, it's moving rapidly. So, I don't want to get too specific or too technical. I need to give kind of principles, but it's very difficult to give principles for voice technologies. (laughs) So, that is interesting. I mean, I realize that most authors are going to buy the book for the audiobooks and the podcasting sections, which are the bulk of the book. That's like, Uh, 40k words on those topics. Um, Turns out I know quite a lot about these things. (laughs) I've been doing it so long. Um, But I do want to give a taste of what's happening with voice. So very interesting. And I'm enjoying the writing a lot and feeling like this is a really good time for me to do this book. Uh, So that is on pre-order. I also, uh, I've talked, I don't know if I've talked about this, but basically, what happened to me at the end of October? So this this isn't relevant for most authors, but if you're an author who uses content marketing, this might be interesting. Um, and also just in general, having an online business. So I have uh, had great organic traffic to the Creative Pen website, thecreativepen.com for years and years. Um, you know, I was one of the, the first websites talking about self-publishing and independent authors and stuff like that. And so I've benefited very much from the um, having a authority site, a lot of content. But what happened at the end of October is the Google BERT algorithm, B-E-R-T, you can look this up if you want, but the Google Bert algorithm update really, really has impacted my traffic. And this is fascinating. So I've obviously been going into this in great detail as to what's going on. And it's a bit like, you know, when Amazon does an algorithm change or when Facebook changed and, you know, these things, if you see a big drop off, then it clearly is algorithm based. And mine was about a week after the update, it dramatically shifted. So, and this is very interesting for voice, which is why the timing of the book is quite good as well, because um, they've changed the algorithm to very much favor voice style searches. You know, in the olden days, those of us who've grown up, uh, well, who didn't grow up with the internet, who started using the internet later on, um, a lot of our search queries would only have been around basic search terms like self-publishing. And I've done very well with search terms like that. But what's happening now is very, very granular search and Google is responding quite differently. So I'm not going to go into anything technical now or even in the book because um, it's not meant to be technical, but I will be doing doing quite a big redesign of the Creative Pen um, for 2020 and uh, looking to do like a big spring clean. I mean, to be fair, I haven't cleaned up my website in a long time. I mean, I've had one site redesign in a decade, (laughs) but um, I have not, like, for example, I've not cleaned up the back content stuff that's years and years old, I need to sort this out. So I know I need to do it, but it's not a task I had budgeted time for, especially over Christmas. But I'm actually quite excited. I started off being worried about it. Now I'm quite excited because I feel like, do you know what? yeah, this needs to be done. And once I've done it, it's going to make my life a lot easier. And I I wanted to bring that up. Two reasons. One, it might help you if you've had any kind of impact from Google Book. um, But two, I think that this impacts authors in a lot of different ways in that. So say you've been around for a while, even a couple of years now, have a look at your books, your covers, your blurbs, your website. Is it up to date? Is it well designed for an, a user experience do you need to do some spring cleaning around your author business and this is the type of thing to think about I know that's kind of new year stuff but given the that um, you know many people have a bit of holiday over Christmas and you know if you have a bit of time to think maybe have a look at your website from and your website and your books and everything from the perspective of the reader and have a look as to whether there's anything you can do to do a bit of uh, spring cleaning for 2020 get more organized. The other thing that's uh, very challenging, I was talking to a friend about this, is the idea of deletion. Now, um, with web traffic, you do like a redirect, 301 redirect. So it doesn't I can resurrect it if I want to, but this is content that I've spent a long time over for many years. But the idea of uh, getting rid of it is so that you find better content. And I think this is a challenge around our books. So I have unpublished several of my books in the past, what, three or four of my books have I have unpublished and they are disappeared. Now, uh, for Kindle books, eBooks, you can disappear them forever, but print books are always around. So I have a few print books that I'm like, oh, you know, I kind of wish they weren't around anymore, but they are an iteration of myself. (laughs) Um, Like Career Change, the first um, edition of that, How to Enjoy Your Job or Find a New One, you can still find those secondhand copies. (laughs) But um, yeah, I think the point is that we do need to address this idea of deletion and cleanup And yes, having iterations of ourselves still around, but equally cleaning up things so we're we're showing the best version of ourselves. So that is what's going on in my head. Um, You know, I have parked my Map of the Impossible novel because this is uh, a big deal for me and my business and my income. So I'm dealing with all that and then I'll get back to uh, fiction in 2020. So yeah, (laughs) that's what's going on personally. So in useful stuff this week, I want to point you towards the new Writers Inc. podcast, and that's Ink spelled I-N-K, um, with J.D. Barker and Jay Thorne. Obviously, Jay Thorne, all of you will know, hopefully as pod- a, a podcast listeners, Jay has lots of podcasts. <laughs> but this one is with... Um, uh, J.D. Barker. And in the in this first episode, uh, it's really interesting. They talk about being a hybrid author, finding an agent who understands the indie world, and also about submitting something like log lines actually ties in really well to this episode of The Creative Pen in that sometimes you can sell um, an idea before you write the book. And in fact, maybe that's the best way to do it. And super interesting, really resonates uh, with the interview because um, Ken talks about sitting across from someone and saying, um, here's a log line. What do you think? And the buyer might say, nah, not my thing. And then they'll be like, what else have you got? Um, What else have you got? What else have you got? And so they're not going to sit there and read all your books. They just want to know what the idea is. So yeah, as much as that's difficult for us to hear, it's really good to think about. So yeah, check out the Writers Inc. podcast on your podcast app. And thanks for all your emails and tweets and comments this week. Kerry says, thank you for covering everything, Joanna. (laughs) I can't ever find information for work at home parents who homeschool like myself. Your episode, Writing with a Family with Andrea Pearson, is so so far inspirational. Uh, I homeschool five kids and the last few years have been unproductive as I try and figure it all out again. Thanks, Kerry. So glad to help. Um, Connor says Kevin J. Anderson was amazing to listen to. It reminds us of the importance of learning and the need for multiple streams of income. Tally. Hello, Tally says, I'm a quiet and shy fan. I love listening to your interviews. When a new one pops up, I know I'm in for a delicious treat. You've given me hours of invaluable data and a thrilling inside info about the author's life. Fantastic. Uh, Finally... um Oh, yes, Jed. I want to give Jed a shout out. I love the idea of treating your books as employees. Jed also said that he only recently started to think about himself as an author after three years of writing and six books. Uh, He just still felt That he wasn't really an author. And then he wrote about a difficult health experience. Um, And he said, When you feel compelled to use every experience to write books for entertainment and education, that has to be the moment to admit it. Uh, So that is fantastic, Jed. I'm so glad that you feel that. I know what you mean. I want to put everything into some kind of book and that becomes part of the challenge of being a writer it's like okay well this happened um whether it was positive or negative or challenging whatever it's like well how do I use that to further my writing or how how it's almost like we don't exist unless it's written down (laughs) which is kind of crazy but yeah there you go the life of a writer (laughs) Right. Today's show is sponsored by Draft2Digital and I will play a word from the lovely Kevin Tomlinson in a moment. Also, just to add that Draft2Digital enables you to get into the various library systems for the paper checkout model, which works really well for you and the library and your book is free to readers. We've got to remember this. So the library model, you do get paid either for a Sale or a checkout. And the call to action to readers is you can get my books for free. Just go to the library and um, ask them to get them into the digital catalogue for ebooks and audiobooks. Now, Mark Lefebvre, who works at Drafter Digital now, has just released a book called An Author's Guide to Working with Libraries and Bookstores on my reading list, haven't read it yet, but Mark is uh, fantastic. So, and I'm going to have him on next year to talk about his tips. I wanted to mention the book because it ties in to draft to digital in that uh, a very good reason for going wide with your books is to reach library patrons. You cannot reach library patrons if you are exclusive. Um, So yeah, very exciting. A word from Kevin coming up. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing of the show, but my time is sponsored by my patrons. So thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon, especially at this time of year. Uh, I really appreciate it going into 2020, which is just mad. You're 11. Um, So thanks to new patrons, EA Sandros, Tracy May Adair, Sarah Jane Weldon, Jen Carter, Emilio Karam and Stefan Doiper. I really appreciate your support on Patreon. Like the tweets and emails, it demonstrates you enjoy the show and find it useful and want it to continue. And you can support the show with just a couple of dollars a month and you'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio. Support the show at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the creative pen. Right, here's a word from Kevin, and then we'll get on with the interview.
1: Hey, this is Kevin Thomason from draft to digital Discoverability is the key to author marketing success, but it's one of the toughest things about the business. How do readers find your work? draft to digital can help with that thanks to reading lists Built around our Universal Book Links D2D reading list, let you create a bookshelf with customizable carousels crammed full of your books. They can be organized by series, release dates, themes, heck, even the color of your covers if you want. It's all up to you. You can also feature books by other authors, and just to make a little extra cash, you can include your affiliate links to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Apple, Kobo, heck, even certain competitors who want to smash your words in a meat grinder. That's one of my favorites kevin smash you'll find reading lists and a whole bunch of other great promotion and marketing tools at books2read.com, powered by drafted digital go to books the number two read.com and discover discoverability for yourself
0: Dr. Ken Atchity is an author, producer, literary manager and editor. He and his story merchant companies have written and developed books, screenplays and films for television and cinema. His books for authors include Tell Your Story to the World and Sell It for Millions and his films include action-adventure thriller The Meg, which I personally loved. So welcome to the show, Ken.
2: Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you.
0: Oh, no, this is very cool. So tell us first a little bit about you and your writing background and how you got into film and TV, because you have a bit more of a classical background, don't you?
2: Uh, yeah, I, I was a professor for years before I went into film and TV. And um, I taught, uh, among other things, uh, medieval English, and therefore, you know, knew all about boss and the wife of bath's Tale and uh Chaucer and so on but i was primarily focused on latin greek and the renaissance and uh yeah totally different from what i do now although i'm developing several t- tv series uh in some of those areas one on sappho and one on the roman empress theodora uh but yeah that was completely different background comparative literature um Yale PhD, and then one day I decided I just wanted to be on the other side of storytelling instead of analyzing and reviewing stories. Um, I preferred my work developing stories with students and my and my own stories, and uh, made finally made the transition to being a literary manager producer
0: and um it's interesting because you make it sound so simple there, like to go from academia to Hollywood, whereas in my mind, and I'm sure many people listening um those are two very, very different worlds so how how did you have to change your i guess your entire mindset and the the, the way you worked as well
2: well that is a that is a longer question than the, the way I answered it. Uh, I actually wrote a book about it called quit your day job and, and, and live the life of your dreams. Uh, because I was a tenured professor. And when I, my reaction to getting tenure after I think 10 years in academia was, uh, actually was depression because I, I really hadn't, uh, thought about what I was doing as being in a golden cage of security and security has never been my primary value. Um, my primary value has always just been cre- creativity and freedom, and uh, of course, security and freedom are both illusions. But freedom was my preferred illusion, where security was my father's <laughs> preferred illusion, and uh, I-, I just decided that I needed to have a more uh, daring life, uh, and-, and went into the world of commercial storytelling. They say the academic world is the world of ideas, and to some extent, that's certainly true, but. There's nothing like the world of ideas to compare with Hollywood. Uh, here, Hollywood, you know, we, we track ideas, we, we trap ideas, we uh, buy and sell ideas for millions of dollars. And we hope to lure audiences all over the world to screens to, to see these ideas turned into, you know, stories and movies. So it was quite a, an evolution. Uh, but it all began when I came up with a, with an idea that ended up being 16 films. And that was my first project. Um, it was called the Shades of Love Project. And it was love stories uh, that I ended up shooting in Montreal and post-producing in Toronto and were distributed all over the world by Warner and by HBO Cinemax. And, and I, you know, I certainly had the bug by that time. And uh, continued in this world uh, where I find stories, develop stories, and then sell stories, produce stories, and, and market them afterwards to make sure they try to get to the screens they should be in, uh, Meg, the Meg being the biggest example because we, we brought in $560 million worldwide so far and uh, hopefully we'll be doing a sequel next year, and it was quite exciting.
0: Yeah and yeah let's talk about the meg because when you um, when you emailed me and you mentioned it I was like yeah I love that movie and uh, my li- my regular listeners will know I'm such a fan of action adventure movies I'm also a fan of Jason Statham so I w- I'm the perfect target market for that film but then I uh, looked more into it and it looks like the Steve Alton book was published what 20 years ago more than 20 years ago so you know, many yeah. many people are interested in, you know, many listeners would love, you know, a film and TV deal. But how, what is the journey from a book like that to film, given that it's been so long?
2: Well, the the, the journey looked like it was going to be real fast because I, I virtually sold the film rights about the same time within a couple of months of selling the, the book rights. Um, and so I sold them to Disney, and Disney... Uh, the way big studios do, had it in what we call development hell for three years, which is nothing. Uh, but then they, it went into what's called turnaround, where the studio loses the rights to it because they haven't produced it yet. And then it uh, a few years later, I sold it again for over a million dollars to another studio that took three years to uh, before they released it. And then years went by, and then it was finally sold to uh, Warner Brothers, who by then owned the second studio that I had sold it to, New Line, and uh, it went into development at Warner Brothers for years until finally it all came together. And, uh, you know, by the time it hit the screen, it was 22 years after the first sale.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's, you know, that that's a kind of at the other end of the bell jar curve, because I've had movies move into production as, as quickly as three to four months, uh, a movie called Joe Somebody with Tim Allen. But Meg was, as far as I'm concerned, is the longest, the longest it's taken any any movie that I've been involved with.
0: Mm. It's interesting. I've, I've actually spoken to a few writers recently who has, who and it has taken 20 years. So this, I was just thinking this 20 years thing is, a, is is a big deal, but it's good to hear things can move more quickly. Um, but most, you know, most authors listening, including myself, obviously, you know, we we would love a film and TV deal. And we have lots of ideas. Most of us own our own IP. Um, on this show, many of us are independent authors. Um, and, you know, I noticed that Steve Alton had, you know, a Literary agent, traditional publishing, but have things changed now for independent authors and creators in in this market?
2: Uh, well, they've only changed for the better, in my opinion. Um, they there are pros and cons, but the biggest pro is that there are more channels and outlets for stories than ever before. And uh, the good news is that many of those, the strongest of those, are now television. Whereas twenty years ago, the strongest by far was film. Uh, Now everybody in film is trying to get into television, whereas before people in television were trying to get into film and weren't exactly welcome. Um, The snobbery has reversed now and and TV is much more powerful because there are so many channels um, that they're all competing for programming. Uh, And and of course, it's now gone to another dimension with Amazon and Netflix becoming studios on their own and producing their own. Uh, story. So it's never been a better time for storytellers as far as placing stories. Um, And the good news is they are likely to get more of the back end of a a story than they ever would have in the past. But um, the bad news is they don't get paid as much up front as they used to uh, because there are so many channels and because everybody is uh, much more frugal in today's world than they were 20 years ago. Uh, Yet, it it's, couldn't be a better time for storytellers. We're always looking, my company, for example, for series, because that's kind of the home run is to have a series of books that we can turn into as television series and, and sell to a major outlet like Stars or Netflix or Amazon or Hulu or Apple or uh, Lifetime or any of the others that are out there. Uh, so I think it's a very exciting time for storytellers.
0: Mm. And then I guess, uh, having done a a little bit of looking at this myself, pitching a TV series is very different to pitching a film. Um, So if people are submitting to you and they want to, or you or other people, you know, uh, should they be addressing, uh, you know, writing a different kind of treatment or, you know, are people interested in actually just seeing books? Uh,
2: No, we... We have a hierarchy of things that we want to see from you. In fact, I give a webinar about that. But the first thing is we want to see a log line uh, just by itself, basically, that pitches us, you know, the, the story behind the series. The second thing we want to see, if we like the log line, we're going to ask to see a one pager. And if we like the one pager, we're going to ask to see a treatment for the series. And uh, if we like the treatment, we're going to say, send us one of the books. Uh, that's basically a f- sequence of things that we need.
0: Mm. And the logline is something that I think many authors struggle with because you know we're used to writing fifty thousand words, a hundred thousand words, and then you want like how many words? Fifty words for a logline? <laughs> so can you give us a couple oh my of examples?
2: God. <laughs> no, I, f- fifty words is more like a one pager. Uh, a logline is you know maybe ten words um, is all we need, and. You know, what what happens if the husband you adore needs to be a woman? You know, there's a one-liner for the Danish girl. Mm. Um, You know, he was left behind on Mars. You know, there's a one-liner for the Martian, right? Right. Uh, US U.S. soldiers try to save their comrade stationed behind enemy lines, saving Private Ryan. You know, four teenage boys make a pact to have their virginity, uh, to lose their virginity by prom night, you know, American pie, and so on. The log line is the, the way you would, you know, you would shout it out to a friend on the telephone if you only had a minute left, and, and they were trying to decide where to go, what movie to see. You know, it's, it's the simplest and quickest way of talking about a movie. Uh, we had a great project once called the kill Martin club and, and the one liner was advertising mogul, Martin Pickford gets murdered a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's about a group of people who go to a nightclub at night and fantasize about ways of killing their boss. And, um, you know, it's, we sold that one to Warner brothers and, you know, what happens when you're selling it to a Hollywood, uh, decision maker or check writer is that they are the final decision is going to come from their boss, and the boss is not going to read a screenplay, is not going to read a book, is maybe not going to read a one-pager. They're going to hear the log line and they're going to immediately say to themselves, I can sell that to the marketing department. And it's the one liner that the marketing department is using, uh, you know, to sell the movie. Like with the Meg, one of the wonderful ones that we use was don't even think about going near the water. Uh, another one was the greatest predator in history is no, is no longer history. But you can see how provocative a one-liner you know, needs to be. And my theory, as somebody who taught classical writing from the beginning, at the times of Quintilian and, and Aristotle, um, taught, you know, going back to them, they they called this one liner that we're talking about sententia was the Latin word for it uh, it was called the premise and honestly once you've written the first draft of a novel there's no way to effectively edit your novel and revise it and make it ready without knowing what the premise of your novel is if you don't know that premise then you're not ready to revise because what's going to result is not going to be focused and clear you know, to the reader. And uh, so when people say, oh, I write 40,000 words, but I can't write a one line description of it, I think something's wrong with that picture because that 40,000 words is probably not something that is going to ever work in Hollywood uh, because it's going to take way too much deconstruction to turn it into a movie. Um, whereas somebody with, with a clear premise has a much better chance of selling their story.
0: Mm. I think a lot of people will find that difficult because I feel like many writers, you know, start with um, a, a sto- the story and don't come up with a, a short one-liner. But what, you're exactly right there. What I want to ask you then, particularly, is the I, the difference between a logline that focuses on character over plot. Because every example really there, almost every example you gave was focused on character, even the one with the shark. <laughs> because in my mind, the Meg is not really a a character movie it's it's a shark movie it's a monster movie um we don't care about the shark as such we care about some of those characters but it's it's not really that type of movie so should we always be focused on character in a log line or or plot yeah I mean
2: the answer is I don't agree with you that that the shark is not a character it is the character that inspired me when I first read the manuscript i the description of the Meg is what got Steve Alton You know got me to want to represent this project uh and when that in that log line the greatest predator in history is no longer history i mean that's entirely focused on character so it's you know i think you have to reshape your thinking a little bit about it um because that is the main thrust of a story i mean there are there are examples like the perfect storm for example um The the logline is almost the title itself. You know, it's the coming together of three storms, you know, that happen to be hitting the exact place on the compass, you know, where this ship is. That is the focus of the movie. But the perfect storm is the, you know, is really the main character of the movie when you think about it. Right.
0: Mm, Yeah.
2: Yeah. And and, uh, so I I think it's almost always about character. um, And. One way or the other, uh, y- you need to understand what your main character is doing. Mm. you know in order to in order to focus your story. I mean, if you have a, a a series that has twelve main characters and 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 you know sixty characters, it probably isn't for television or you know the world of entertainment. It may be uh, a, an indie. you know you may raise the money and make it yourself. But um, when you think about, you know, the Fisher King, or uh, snow falling on cedars, or American Sniper, or Runaway Bride, or you know, Bridge of Spies, it all comes down. Most of those come down to character.
0: Mm. Yeah. So absolutely. So the so the tip is that the logline should should be character focused because uh, you know that's that's where the the main conflict is. Even something like Game of Thrones, I guess, which is, like you said, mentioned 60 characters. I think that there's, you know, a lot of them in <laughs> Game mm-hmm. of Thrones, but it's still a very character-based um, uh, logline, I guess. I don't actually know what that would be, but I guess Game of Thrones is in itself a logline.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, think about Psycho or Sleepless in Seattle. These are all examples of, you know, or one of my favorites, Liar Liar. It's it's an, about an attorney who is forced to tell the truth. I mean, that's all about character, right? Mm-hmm. Or Bruce Almighty, another Jim Carrey movie, where an ordinary guy suddenly becomes God. Um, you know, it's it's about that guy. You know, what we love about stories is what would happen if a a woman like this found her situation in a in, in a you know found her itself in a situation like that because if you can't relate to the main character it's really hard to enlist audiences to spend their time watching that story you know the horse whisperer i mean the greatest i think movies you know that we remember are ones about a main character it may be a massive main character like war and peace really is about war you know that probably is the main character of Dostoevsky, you know, Tolstoy's novel. Right. Mm. But um, most of the time, the main character is a a person uh, or a horse or a dog. You know, (laughs) like those are the stories that stick with us the most.
0: Mm, Great. So, uh, so we now have our log line. Um, what, what do we do with that? If we, um, do we need to hunt out an agent or should we, you know, cause I've spoken to some people before and they've, the first response has been, why don't you get your literary agent to do this? And I'm like, well, I'm an independent creator. So, uh, you know, I don't, I don't use a literary agent for my publishing side. So, should we be uh, working with agents, or should we be going to festivals, or what should what should we be doing?
2: Well, you could you should read my book, "Sell Your Story to Hollywood," uh, (laughs) which is the subtitle is "Writer's Pocket Guide to the Business of Show Business," because it shows you all those things. But the ideal here's the problem. The problem is if you're not here in Hollywood. Um, it's uh, relatively dangerous to be pitching one-liners to anyone other than an agent, a representative. I'm a literary manager, so we count two, and attorneys two, and agents all three in the same category of literary representative. And uh, they're the safest way for your log line to be pitched because if you pitch it to a studio, um, first of all, the studios are going to be protecting themselves from getting random one liners, right? <laughs> yeah. Because they they'll re- they'll refuse your email and then when you get it bounced back to you, it'll even say this email was returned unread because they you know, they are not willing to take any kind of liability for a random idea that comes across the you know, the, the threshold. We used to say transom in the world where there were transoms, but now that's long gone. But um, so that because they, they, they get so many ideas, ideas are, you know, virtually a dime a dozen. They're, they're probably a dime for a thousand. Um, what people want is the next step, which is a, a treatment. Um, and at the very least, and what they really want is a novel, but the, catch22 is getting those novels into the hands of somebody who can read them and that's where you have a representative who can who can help do that and you know if I go to lunch I'm you know I go to lunch at least once or twice a week and I I pitch stories I always start out with the one-liner for the story because if my buyer you know whether it's a financer or a pr- another producer or a director that I'm pitching to if my buyer, Isn't interested in the one-liner. I'm wasting my breath pitching that story to them, uh, with rare exceptions. So that's how you start. But you can most successfully do that if you're in the business. You know, you're actually here where you physically have a relationship that's been, you know, going on for some cases thirty years for me. Uh, They they want to hear the one-liners that I give them, and then they want to say what else do you have on it? I just got an email this morning from a major financer saying they loved what I'd sent them, which was basically a one-liner. What else do you have to send me? Do you have a script? Do you have this? Do you have that? You see what I mean? So Mm. uh, that's that's why having a representative to Hollywood is important. You know, we are living in the exciting internet world of uh, getting your own stories out there. And if you're professional and do everything right, then you're, you've got an enormous advantage you didn't have 10 years ago when everything had to go through the gatekeepers of the traditional publishers in in London and New York but fortunately you know we we've passed by that and uh you know but, but the problem is that in the old days 10,000 stories made their way around Hollywood every year now it's probably closer to 50,000 or 100,000 because a million books are being sold you know being published every year instead of 50,000 or 100,000. Th- thanks to Amazon and the internet in general, it's so, you know, so many stories floating around, it-, it really helps you to have a representative. And one of the secrets I can tell you is that it-, it may be hard to find an agent and hard to find a literary manager, but it isn't nearly as hard to find an attorney. Uh, and so if you look up in your directories and find an attorney who deals with entertainment, you can actually you know, meet that attorney by phone or in person and get them to represent you. And all that will cost you is an hourly fee as opposed to um, hoping that he'll decide to do it on spec, you know, or pro bono. Mm. But um, I urge people who can't find an agent or a manager to find an attorney uh, as, you know, locally if they can, but just make sure he has entertainment experience and credentials.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's fantastic. I've heard that from a lot of people. <laughs> so, so that's really good. Right. Now, I did want to ask you about, um, Uh, budgets, because uh, I have, I pitched a book uh, at at an agent and he said, well, you know, great idea, but that's going to cost like over a hundred million dollars. So why don't you write a low budget horror? Because, you know, they're easy to get made. Um, So, and I thought that was interesting. And I think I read in one of your books, uh, not to think about budget when you're writing a book. So what, what, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, that's, that's a very good question. And I, I kind of understand what the agent told you, but that is based on the assumption that you are desperate to get produced, as opposed to the assumption of going for the you know the gold ring, uh, which is what I usually start out with, um, for my clients. I want to go for the gold ring. I'm not the least bit interested in the word low budget, because uh, Hollywood doesn't get nearly as excited about that as they do about a hundred million dollar plus budget. That is That gets people's attention more than anything else. Money is not an issue. It's always how good is this story and how powerful are the roles of the protagonists and antagonists, and are they powerful enough to attract stars because that's what makes the big movie work is stars. So I would say it all depends on what your goals are. If your goal is to go for the moon, then I'd say, write the you know the high budget story and if it's just to get produced because you think somehow that's going to make your life better which it possibly will um then yeah to take the advice and write a low budget story but i really had to see writers guessing about budgets because for example writing a low budget story that t- takes place in the middle ages you know is not going to be a low budget movie um even if there are only a few characters and this and that. So I, I just don't think that, I think the purpose of writing and, and the function of writers is vision and sharing their vision with the rest of us. And I really hate to see them trimming their own vision with, you know, financial shears that they aren't necessarily going to be too good at doing.
0: Mm. And at the end of the day, I mean, you've got to write what you love. And I love, you know, I love big action adventure movies. Um, You know, I love big Hollywood (laughs) and explosions and blowing up the Eiffel Tower. And, you know, that's what I love to watch. So I, you know, I'm always going to write books like that, which are big books. Um, And people who love small, small literary, you know, one room books, you know, there was a movie about that, wasn't there? Uh, Room, I think it was. And, you know, that's possible, but you've got, to love that kind of writing, I guess.
2: Yeah, you have to love it, that's true. So hopefully you won't be writing anything you don't love. So
0: <laughs> No, exactly Life's too short. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Um, So I did also want to ask you, because I noticed that you've also written, um, obviously, you've written some nonfiction books, which you've mentioned, but you've also written uh, The Messiah Matrix, which uh, attracted me, uh, because your blurb says for fans of Dan Brown and James Rollins, which is absolutely my target market. Um, So, But I found a lot of these um, books seem to be cross-genre. So I wanted to ask you about cross-genre, because, um, you know, many people find books hard to sell when they fit between genres and are not quite clear. Um, so, what are your thoughts on sort of these cross-genre niches? And should we be aiming for that, or should we be really aiming for very clear genre?
2: Well, again, that is a you know that is a um, logical question based on the very opposite of what the creative world is based on. The creative world is based on thinking outside the box, and that is a question that is created by the box makers and the box makers always love you to be focused on a genre. Um, they don't like cross genre because frankly, they don't know where to put it in the bookstore. But, uh, fortunately bookstores, um, are not determining the the future any longer. Uh, the internet is much less boxy, you know, than, than bookstores are. Uh, so, I don't really think that way. I just, if you, if I got a book in front of me, which I do often, that is both a thriller and a romance, I'm going to make a decision of how to pitch that depending on who I'm talking to. And at the end of the day, if it gets made into a movie, it will probably be marketed as a market. I mean, as a thriller, for example, or as a romance, not as a cross-genre thing. Cross-genre is not a word that anybody really uses in the real world other than marketers you know what i mean Mm. it's not a creative world so you know in in your um you know in your arcane series for example uh, which is similar to the messiah matrix in some ways uh i i just see these as primarily thrillers how do you see them
0: Yeah, I see them as thrillers, too. Uh, But I feel like uh, much of that kind of Dan Brown, uh, you know, at one point they might have been called religious thrillers, but they're not Christian thrillers. So they kind of fall down a a gap. Um, But, yeah, I agree with you. I think it's just thriller.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and that's not really cross-genre. cross-genre is when you, you know, have a sci-fi romance, for example. I'm having trouble selling the book right now that is – a story about going back in time to save the life of a woman, the guy's in love with. And, uh, I love the romantic part of the story more than I do the sci-fi part of the story. Um, and unfortunately when I send it out to traditional publishers, they're seeing it as sci-fi and they're not feeling the romance come through as strongly because it was subordinated to the other, you know, to the other genre. Mm. And, um, so it's very hard to find a traditional market for a story like that but if um if if you made it into a movie and focused it on focused it on being a thriller um you you wouldn't have a problem people people going out to watch the movie do not stop you know at the t- at the pub after the movie and say well it was kind of cross genre you know <laughs> like nobody would would say things like that who loved the movie um uh, That's only something that kind of academics say and that marketing uh, gurus say and that people who put things in pigeonholes say.
0: Yeah. And I guess now, you know, as independent authors and publishers, we have to put things in pigeonholes because we have to do the publishing <laughs> but um i like that idea right i like the idea that we can break out of that so we're almost out of time um can you just you know tell people what because what, i went on your websites you've got lots of websites and lots of books and lots of information for people to find out more um what is the best place uh you know for people to come to and, and what will they find in terms of of what you do
2: well they um it took me a while to figure all this out because I realized over the years that I've been basically creating companies to respond to needs that I saw in the writing community. I've been working with writers my whole life. And so I have one company that is an editorial company and writes books for authors who really don't want to write. They just have a you know a life or an idea. Uh, that's my oldest company, The Writer's Lifeline. And I have other companies that represent writers to traditional publishers. And I have a company that publishes writers who uh, don't make it with traditional publishers, but I still need them to be books so I can sell them to Hollywood. And then I have a couple of production companies, but all of it is brought together in a uh, website called storymerchant.com, where you know, on that landing page you can go, you can see what the different companies do and which one might be best for you, and also see videos that I've done and uh, interviews and books and so on. So StoryMerchant.com is the is the one-stop place to get to meet me and what we're up to. Um, and it even has a place where you can tell us about your story, you know, as an email, basically, right there on the site. Uh, so, that I hope answers your questions. And I'm always happy to talk to writers. And to one of my greatest joys as a professor was helping writers. And uh, unfortunately, as a manager, I, I get to help one writer, but I actually don't spend as much time as I would like to talking to writers. And that's what I do, why I do podcasts and webinars and uh, try to teach in that way, thanks to the internet and making it possible for all of us.
0: Mm. Well, this has been fantastic. And I I know you've given everyone lots to think about. So thanks so much for your time, Ken. That was great.
2: Well, thank you, Joanne. I really appreciate it.
0: So I hope you found the interview with Ken really interesting today and that it's given you some ideas about how you could make your book or books more pitchable. It certainly left me going, oh, I really do need to think about log lines. In an era of ever more content, it would be great to see more indies selling to the big TV and film markets. I know it is the goal of many of you and me included. So uh, next week, we are squarely in the holiday season. So I will be sharing uh, some more personal stuff in the next few episodes. Next week will be a reflection on 2019 and the last decade for indie authors with me and Orna Ross. Then we're almost at my roundup for the year uh, and then my 2020 goal episode. And it's so funny because I've already rewritten those posts because obviously I write the post first and then I record it. And I've rewritten it several times because things just keep changing and I keep changing my plans. So things are still in flux. But by the time these weeks, two weeks time, I will have sorted out. (laughs) So as we move into the peak of crazy holiday season, I hope you are finding a moment of calm and peace to reflect on your creative year. So happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at TheCreativePen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time!